Well, do turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 16 verses to us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 16. But I'll let you find it before I start reading it, as I said yesterday. It's a good thing, isn't it, for us all to be able to read it while it's being read. Sounds like the rustling of the leaves has finished. I'll assume you've either given up trying to find it or you're there. But let me read. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with, his, with the gospel. We are not trying to please man, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from man, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Well, there can't be much doubt, can there, that uh, the run-up to the next general election has begun. Even though, from his own mouth now, Gordon Brown confessed that he was going to call a general election last autumn and he regrets the kind of uncertainties that it caused that he didn't, we are in the run-up to the next general election. It may be two years away, I suppose, and therefore Peter Snow can be put in his box for another 24 months or so before he gets let out again. And the party political broadcasts don't need to be recorded yet, but the run-up to the election has begun, and you can see that now pretty well every time at the dispatch box in the House of Commons comes PMQs, Prime Minister's Question Time. Now, I'm one of those rather sad individuals that quite likes watching Prime Minister's Question Time, and I quite often go on to the Number 10 Downing Street website where you can watch them, uh, all of them, for years back, they're all there, and if you're a sad individual who can't sleep at night, there you can go and log on to the 10 Downing Street website and watch, uh, watch them. One thing that's been fascinating over the last few months, ever since, in fact, Gordon Brown didn't call the election last autumn, 
One thing that's been noticeable is how every time David Cameron gets to his feet and asks a question, what's going on is clear. There's no mention really now of policies or of achievements or manifestos. It's a calculated attack on the person. Cameron goes for Mr. Brown. So he quotes from Gordon Brown's book called Courage and Cameron uses words like bottled it and phony. They're his favourite words to describe Mr. Brown. And why does he do it? Well, I take it he does it because if you can discredit the leader, you can discredit what he stands for. If you can undermine the person, you can undermine their policy. And that's what Mr. Cameron, whatever you politically, whatever your political inclinations are, that seems to me to be what's going on. And there is nothing new in such tactics. Nothing new in trying to discredit a message by discrediting the messenger. Because that seems to be what's going on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now yesterday we learned that Paul had been the founding missionary. He was the evangelist who had gone to Thessalonica. Paul had been there, well, some scholars say three Sabbaths, Roger Carswell says considerably longer, you can go with whoever you think. But whatever, it certainly wasn't the length of campaign that Paul was in Ephesus for. There's no sense in which I think that he was there for as long as he was in those cities like Ephesus and Corinth. Paul had been hounded out of town. But Timothy has just come from visiting Thessalonica and brought the good news that the Thessalonians are going on well. They're real Christians. And we saw yesterday the genuine hallmarks of authenticity that were stamped upon the Thessalonians. They started out the right way. They were indeed the genuine article, the real deal, because of the way the gospel came to them, the way the gospel was received by them, and now the way the gospel was ringing out from them. And so Paul can give thanks to God for them. And you'll notice in verse 13 he's going to go back and give thanks to God for them. But in verses 1 to 12, sandwiched in between Paul giving thanks and why he gives thanks, Paul interrupts that section about the Thessalonians to speak about himself. Paul tells the Thessalonians about his own ministry while there. And I take it it is because mud is being slung at Paul. Reading between the lines, as it were, listening to one side of the telephone conversation. Have you ever done that? You, you, you hear your wife on the phone and you're trying to work out, well, who is it she's talking to? And then you work that out and, then you are, what? and you can work out what the other person's saying from the half of the conversation you can hear. And it appears from the way Paul defends his ministry or speaks of his ministry in verses 1 to 12, that there are people in Thessalonica who are trying to discredit Paul. Slinging mud at Paul, so that the Christians in Thessalonica would doubt the reality of the message that they've heard. You see, if if Paul can be discredited, then perhaps the message he preached can be discredited. If Paul can be undermined, then perhaps the gospel the Thessalonians heard can be undermined. And the Thessalonians knocked off course. Most commentators agree that that's likely to be the explanation for the amount of of space Paul gives in verses 1 to 12 for the defence of his ministry. You see, the opposition party, are they suggesting you can't trust what you heard 
Because you can't trust Paul. When I uh, was uh, doing my first job in Basingstoke, uh, I couldn't go to one of those posh garages. I was poor as a church mouse. I couldn't go to a posh garage. There was a little man who had a, his own garage business under the railway arches in Basingstoke. And I had a car that cost about three and sixpence. It shows how old I am, that it was measured in pounds, shillings and pence. But I had a, a clapped-out car, and to keep it on the road, I took it to this guy. One time after I'd taken my car to have it serviced by him, I saw in the local paper that this man and his garage had been closed down and he'd been sent to prison for fraud. Which made me wonder, when he told me my gearbox needed work, when he told me that the carburettor needed attention, I started to wonder, did it really? Did I really need to spend the money that I did spend on the car maintenance? Because the man had been discredited, I started to question whether everything he'd said to me was right or not. If you uh, notice carefully, one of the things uh, I think is important that we do when we study the Bible, by the way, is not only just ask what what a passage says, but look at the way it says it. Indeed, in in, uh, chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians, you can see that in chapter 1 and verses 2 to 10... And then chapter 2 and verses 13 to 16. Can you see they both those sections begin the same way? Paul giving thanks continually. And can you notice that uh, then Paul gives reasons why he gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians. But deliberately, sandwiched in between that in verses 1 to 12, Paul speaks about his own ministry. Now Paul could have structured the material, chapter 2 verses 2 to 10, his thanksgiving and the reason for it. And then he could have put chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, thanksgiving and the reason for it. He could have put that all together as one section of thanksgiving and why Paul is thankful to God for the way the Thessalonians have responded to the Gospel. Why sandwich in the middle, chapter 2 and verses 1 to 12? I take it it is because Paul wants us to see that the message that Paul preached and he, the minister, are inextricably linked. That you can't drive a wedge between the message that's preached and the one who preached it. And so that's why Paul is reminding them of his ministry. And notice it is a reminder. Paul isn't giving them new information in verses 1 to 12. So notice verse 2, as you know. Or verse 5, you know. Or verse 9, surely you remember. Or verse 10, you are witnesses. Or verse 11, for you know. You can't get away from it. Paul is reminding them of what they already know, reminding them of his ministry, and he first is reminding them of the integrity of the gospel minister. The integrity of the gospel minister. His opening statement comes in verse 1. You know, my brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. His visit to them was not a failure, or empty, or valueless, or vacuous, it could be translated. I suppose we might say his visit was not a waste of time. Perhaps the Thessalonian Gazette has has been running the smear campaign. Maybe the banner headlines has been Mission Imposter. Paul, shown to be a charlatan. Whereas Paul is saying, no, his visit wasn't a failure. 
Don't believe what they're saying. And it's an important point Paul's making. Our visit to you was not a failure. If you're an evangelist, you must have had people coming up to you and saying, how did it go in that mission? How did it go? It's a great way to respond, isn't it? It wasn't a failure. It wasn't a failure. That's how Paul puts it. In other words, notice there is no mention of numbers. It wasn't a failure. Why wasn't it a failure? Well, because in chapter 1, there has been authentic response to the message that's been preached. And when anyone turns to the living God with the authentic marks of faith that we've seen in chapter 1, then that evangelism, not a failure. Is there a danger that we get too locked up, too sucked into and too bound by numbers? I think that's always the evangelist's danger. Because as I said yesterday, the danger is that the evangelist will think that everyone else will value their ministry by the numbers that respond. But actually, ministry is not a failure when there's just some who are showing the hallmarks of real faith. Paul's ministry was not a failure. But four things I want you to notice about the integrity of this non-failed ministry, this non-failed campaign in Thessalonica. Here's the first. I want you to notice with me Paul's ongoing suffering. There's going to be some overlap with the things that Roger said last night here, but that's just the way it goes. Uh, If Paul says the similar things in 2 Corinthians to 1 Thessalonians, well, that's uh, probably what we need to hear then. Paul's ongoing suffering. Notice verse 2. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. In Acts uh, 17, we discover Paul came to Thessalonica. But he came from Acts chapter 16, from Philippi. And there in Philippi, Paul had been put in prison merely for releasing a slave girl from demon possession. There Paul had been requested, to put it mildly, to leave the city. But what does Paul do when he has been hounded out of Philippi? Does he take a well-earned sabbatical rest? Does he take a few weeks' holiday to lick his wounds? Escape to a retreat centre to get out of the heat of gospel battle? No, it's nothing of the sort. Uh, It's not surprising if you'd read Acts so far, because after all, in Acts 14, Paul had been left for dead outside a city and just gets back up and goes back into the city to preach. And Paul sticks at gospel ministry, sticks at evangelism, despite the immense personal cost to him. It's what we heard last night, isn't it? From two Thessalonians. Paul continues his ministry from Philippi, that's where he had previously suffered, that's where he'd been previously insulted, He continues and goes to Thessalonica and even when in Thessalonica, despite the fact the inevitable persecution begins when he gets there, does he jack it in after one Sabbath? Far from it. Paul sticks at preaching the gospel in Thessalonica until he's hounded out of that city too. And I think the point Paul's making in verse 2 is if Paul was a fraud, would he have carried on preaching the gospel in the face of such severe opposition? In other words, continuing despite opposition is a hallmark of integrity. The charlatan doesn't do that. The imposter would leg it when personal trouble comes along. 
In other words, you can tell authentic ministry by the way it keeps going under opposition. The old saying is true, when the, tough get, when the going gets tough, the tough keep going, or the real keep going. We should expect to see that in Christian ministry, in our corporate and personal evangelistic work. Now, I know Pete knows uh, this couple uh, well, but when I was uh, working in a church in London, we support, supported a couple uh, who were navigators, working with the navigators uh, in Nigeria. They were seeking to put Bible training materials into the hands of uh, local uh, Nigerians. Uh, one night, uh, the compound where James and uh, Barbara were staying was broken into. Uh, James heard the disturbance downstairs and went downstairs and was confronted by the intruder who immediately shot James uh, through an eye. The intruder then went upstairs into Barbara's bedroom and raped her at gunpoint. The first we heard as a local church, this happened on a Saturday evening, we heard late Saturday night as a church what had happened and we were told that an air ambulance could fly out that Sunday morning and bring James back, but only if the cash was in the hands of the air ambulance company on that day. They wouldn't fly out without the money. Well, the pastor told us as a congregation that, that, that we needed just over £45,000 and needed it by lunchtime. And the congregation gave it. And the air ambulance uh, flew out and brought James and uh, Barbara uh, home. James, I, I've lost count of the number. I think it's 11 operations that James has had to rebuild his face. They've taken bone from his hip and then taken that and reconstructed his eye socket and his uh, cheekbone. I saw Barbara about five weeks ago down uh, in the south. I said, how's James doing at the moment? She said, well, his memory's not as good as it used to be. But he's actually back in Nigeria at the moment uh, doing some gospel work there. That's the mark of genuineness, isn't it? You get shot through the face, your wife gets raped, and you go back and stick at gospel work. That's a hallmark of authenticity. Now, the opposition that Roger has uh, self-confessed that he has experienced is tame compared to that. There is a whole load of difference between a fist in the face and a bullet in the face. But, opposition does come our way. I think the worst I've personally experienced was preaching evangelistically at a wedding. You may have had this experience. The couple who were both Christians, they got loads of non-Christian rallies there, and they said, you will sock them the gospel in the talk, won't you? There is no... Let me say, if you're a young person about to get married, and you tell... There is no... You, they, you put pressure on the evangelist, something rotten like that. There, the couple were expecting 50 rallies to be converted through one sermon. There were us. I preached the gospel as well as I, as well as I could at the wedding. And in the line-up afterwards, the bride's mother just stood there. I put out my hand, and she put her hands behind her back. I couldn't believe it. I said, um, are you, it's a great service, wasn't it? She said, no. That was the worst thing I've ever heard. I brought up my daughter to believe the complete opposite of what you said in that service. I am embarrassed at that service, and I wish you'd never come. That was the wedding line-up. I, quick, I quickly moved on to the groom's parents, hoping for something better. 
The opposition, I suppose, that you and I have had is tame so far. Now, let me say, I've told my children to expect me to go to prison before the end of my ministry. Now, I'm not a prophet. I don't know what the future holds in this country. It would be a great surprise to me if things continue as they have over the last 10 to 20 years, that in this country, you who are young and starting out in your evangelistic ministry, it would be a great surprise to me if you guys don't suffer a whole load more than people like Roger and I have. And that some of you may go to prison. I told our children to expect me to go to prison just so that they grow up with some realism. That evangelists suffer and are opposed. And a mark of your integrity, a mark of your genuineness is that when you're opposed, by the help of God, you are picked up and keep going. You're picked up and stick at it. But what keeps someone doing that? What kept Paul doing it? Was it because Paul was a macho Indiana Jones kind of hero? The superhero who just is never put down? Is he the kind of Clark Kent who just has that kind of raw, I'm going to do it? No. Notice, secondly, not just Paul's ongoing ministry in the face of suffering, but secondly, his transparent motives. Verse 3 to 6. His transparent motives. You see, it seems that the smear campaign against Paul was making out that his ministry was for what he got out of it. It does appear that there were first century travelling preachers, not Christians, but speakers who went around for their own gain. Freelancers who toured the circuit, speaking, I know, social clubs, giving after-dinner talks, almost like some modern comics. Now, to make a living out of that, you've got to please your audience, haven't you? The modern comic doesn't play long if he doesn't entertain or please. Now, Billy Connolly, in his famous tours around the various places he goes, he will not be sustained as the stand-up comic if the audiences don't turn up, if the audiences don't laugh, if his TV programmes aren't well watched, if the DVDs aren't bought. He's got to please the crowd, hasn't he? And the ancient travelling preacher wouldn't make a living if he didn't scratch where his audience itched. But notice verse 3. Paul keeps going because the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. And then, on the contrary, verse 4. And twice Paul says, verse 4, we are not trying to please men. And he says it again, repeated, in verse 6, we are not looking for praise from men. In other words, Paul's saying that his ministry was not motivated by a desire to please men, but instead was motivated by the desire to please God. And can I say, that fundamentally is what keeps us at evangelistic work, even when it's tough. We're not in it for ourselves. Can I say that if we're in it to be thought well of, to be praised, or to be applauded, we will not stick at it long term. Because if that's what motivates us, what happens when the applause stops? What happens when there's no praise? Paul's transparent motives. And it means, of course, he wouldn't change the message or duck the difficult bits of the message. 
because he didn't want to offend people. Because one of the ways you win the praise of men, of course, is by not offending them. And therefore not saying the things that they won't like to hear. And yet that sadly has happened right through the history of the Christian church. Evangelists ducking the offence of the gospel because they don't want to offend people. Fundamentally, of course, because they want to win the praise of men. Paul wasn't selfishly motivated. It mattered more to him what God, the God of heaven thought of him rather than what the people of Thessalonica thought of him. And there are two reasons given for why that is the case. First, because it's God who's entrusted to him with the ministry. And secondly, because it's God who tests our hearts. In other words, first, it's the source of Paul's ministry. Now, some of us have been appointed to the roles that we have. Maybe it was by an eldership. Maybe it was by a congregation. Uh, Paul was sent out, having had hands laid on him by the church in Antioch. But ultimately, we're in ministry because God has appointed us to the task. Because God has entrusted us with the gospel. I don't know whether you know, but uh, Church of England clergymen are technically not employed. Uh, For the sake of the inland revenue, who want to take tax off us, uh, we are self-employed. But that's merely so that they can get the tax. Technically, Church of England clergymen are employed by God. The inland revenue can't quite find the address of the employer, and so they have to treat us as self-employed for that reason. Church of England clergy receive no salary. We receive a stipend. There's a subtle difference uh, between the two. And the reason that we receive a stipend, not a salary, the reason that we're technically employed by God rather than by the organisation which is the Church of England, technically it is because of 1 Thessalonians 2. Because we believe our ministry has not come from men, but has been entrusted to us by God himself. And can I say that's an enormously powerful motivation to stick at ministry when it's tough. Because we don't believe our ministry has fundamentally been given to us by men, but by God. So the source of our ministry is God, and then secondly, the judge of our ministry is God. It's he who tests our hearts. It's he who, verse 5, is our witness. It's a strange thing in ministry, isn't it, that uh, we bother even at all thinking about having impure motives, It's strange that anything impure we allow to motivate us because we can't con God. He knows exactly what our heart is like. He knows the motives of our hearts. And again, that's a powerful and important motivation, isn't it, for us to be real. I can con you about what motivates me, but I can't con God extraordinary, isn't it? How silly we are. We're like ostriches, aren't we? Yeah, we bury our head in the sand and we think because we've done that 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 no one can see us. That's what the ostrich does. But actually God knows our hearts fundamentally. And so because God is the source of our ministry and because God is the judge of our ministry, we ought to be faithful in ministry. 
transparent motives. And notice in verse 5, Paul can say the church knows this. The Thessalonians know this. In other words, what made Paul stick at ministry was clear, was obvious, was transparent. They could see why he was doing the job. It may be harder for itinerant evangelists, for the people you minister to, to see uh, that, because you're there for a short time. But those of us who are doing evangelism in the same place regularly, the people ought to be able to see what makes us tick, because they see us among them. The integrity of Paul is both seen and motivated by his transparent motives. And that leads, thirdly, to his loving hard work, in verses 7 to 9. Paul's loving hard work. Paul had come to Thessalonica, and he had slogged his guts out. In verse 7, he says that he had every right to to have had a a burden placed upon the Thessalonians. We could have been a burden to you. Most commentators think that that means... He had every right while he was there for and uh, to have financial provision. After all, elsewhere he does say, doesn't he, that a worker, a worker is worthy of his wage. It is right, can I say, that congregations pay for their ministry and absolutely right that congregations pay for evangelists when they come for their ministry. I'm embarrassed that Roger should say last night that some missions he's done, all he gets is a box of quality street. We've all had that experience. Have you ever been? I've been to countless uh, evangelistic events and and student missions and things where at the end I'm given a £20 book token where I can never quite work out how that goes in the petrol tank to get me home again. But there there you go. Uh, And and as, as, as Roger said last night, of course, the Lord is brilliantly good at providing for us. And I say that not in any personal way, just to say that elsewhere Paul does believe that the worker is worthy of his wage. But Paul didn't want here to place a burden on a group of people who were first hearing the gospel. Precisely, I take it, because no, so that no one could ever lay the charge at Paul that he was only in it for what he got out of it. Paul says, he could have been a burden, but wasn't. There's a contrast, verse 7, but we were gentle among you. And Paul now uses the illustration of like a mother caring for her little children. Now, in the context there, I think that's most likely to be an illustration of the loving hard work. Some commentators argue that Paul uses the illustration of the mother with the children because it's the mother who, as it were, brings into birth a child. And he's speaking of the mother in that kind of terms. It may be that, or it may just be that motherhood itself is hard work. I'm married to a woman who's a mother. And I see her hard work. Bringing up three children is hard work. Do you know, I've been married to my wife uh, for 17 years. I have to think about it for a moment. That's for 17 years. Uh, We've had children for 12 of those years. And in the last 12 years, I don't think I can remember an occasion where Joe sat down and did nothing. Even on a night off, and I say, hey, shall we we sit in and uh, watch a DVD? You know, what happens is I veg in the, on the sofa watching the DVD and the ironing board comes out and she does the ironing. <laughs> if you're listening to this by some electronic method and work here to hear that, brothers were shouting amen from the congregants. <laughs> I take it motherhood is demanding. Out of love, Paul can say, verse, very, verse 9, we toiled 
hardship. He can say he worked day and night. Indeed, six times in the New Testament, Paul says he worked day and night for the congregation or the people he was ministering to. I think it's likely Paul engaged, well, elsewhere in tent making in order not to need to draw a salary or stipend. But the charge that Paul was in it for what he got out of it cannot be substantiated because you remember verse 9 that that wasn't the case. And can I say, we who are in Christian ministry are not in it for financial gain. I think uh, Big Billy's been a great, a great example of that, hasn't he? He could have been extraordinarily wealthy, couldn't he? But I gather all through his life he's just received the standard salary of a Southern Baptist minister. I think that's impressive. And what was the hard work? Verse 8, sandwiched in the middle of between verse 7 and verse 9, what was the hard work? We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you'd become so dear to us. In other words, what was the ministry, the hard work? It was sharing the gospel and sharing lives. Notice both. Here, while among people, Paul shared the gospel, certainly, but he shared who he was. In other words, there was no detached professionalism here. Now, I don't know whether this is the case or whether I'm just oversensitive to it at, at the moment, but is there a trend in England at the moment to professionalise ministry? Is there just a ten- tendency that we're getting all concerned with job contracts and hours of employment and rights to days off? Now, of course, I've got sympathy that we need to have time to recharge our batteries and we must love our families and so on. But I can't get the impression that Paul was too interested in signing a job contract when he arrived in Thessalonica. That when he went to Thessalonica, he went with the mindset of giving, not just the gospel to the Thessalonians, but giving his very self to the Thessalonians as well. Let me tell you about a minister I know, I won't name him. But, uh, but he's the kind of minister who preaches brilliantly on Sundays. He always arrives at church. He is always very well prepared. He always delivers well. But in the coffee bit afterwards, he nearly always nips off home. He doesn't stick around till the end of kind of coffee. He's the kind of guy he never has people into his own home. He does the job, but doesn't give his life. And I find that slightly incompatible with what's going on here when Paul's in Thessalonica. It's not just a job. It's his very self that he gives. The integrity of the gospel minister, seen in loving hard work, which is closely allied, of course, to his consistent lifestyle in verses 10 to 12. And again, Paul can appeal to their Thessalonians' knowledge of how he was while he was amongst them. And it seems that the slur may have been that Paul preached one thing but lived another. And so Paul reminds them of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. That Paul wasn't do as I say, but not as I do. 
In verses 11 and 12, Paul says, no, his ministry instead had been that as a father dealing with children. And the commentators that think if the mother illustration is about bringing into existence and the father illustration is about nurturing, whether that's the case or not, I don't know. But what is clear is that Paul's ministry was to encourage comfort and urge them to live lives worthy of God, which is what exactly in verse 10 Paul had been doing himself. In other words, what Paul was encouraging them to live was how Paul himself lived. In other words, there is nothing better for a congregation or people you evangelise to see what you're calling on them to do is what you are doing yourself. I think of a leader in a church where my wife and I uh, used to uh, attend. He was an elder of the church and yet it was discovered that he was having an affair. It had been going on apparently for five years. And the big thing we prayed as a leadership team as he was disciplined and dismissed from eldership and ministry in the church, our biggest prayer was that it wouldn't have a negative effect on the new Christians, on the fringe of the church. Because that was our fear, that people would have seen the lack of integrity of this leader and come to discredit the gospel as a result. And isn't that a challenge for us? Isn't it a challenge that our ministry, the gospel we preach, isn't brought into disrepute by what we do? And can I say that is something you ought to pray daily about in your evangelism. And let me say, there but for the grace of God go any of us. So pray for the grace of God daily that what you preach, what you're calling on people to do, is mirrored by the way that you live. Now, of course, none of us are perfect. Roger's not perfect. We've seen evidence of that clearly already this week. Oh, no, that's not right. It is right, actually, but it's unfair to say it. None of us are perfect. But uh, I don't know whether you've ever been on a London tube uh, train where you've just, the doors have opened and the electronic kind of voice is, mind the gap. Mind the gap. You know that, where the platform is curved and the, the carriage is straight and so a gap has occurred between carriage and platform. Mind the gap. Mind the gap between what we say, what we're calling on people to do in ministry and the way that we live our, ourselves. And daily pray, mind the gap. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if our ministry was not just brought to an end, but wouldn't it be a tragedy if the people we had been ministering to gave up on the gospel because of us? And so in these four areas, Paul defends the integrity of his ministry. The Christians in Thessalonica can be sure the gospel message and the gospel messenger tie together. But it appears as a second reason that Paul can be sure that his ministry was not in vain. And so he can be sure why the Thessalonians are the real deal. And so, in the midst of this section, 
where we've seen the integrity of the gospel minister, Paul now returns in verses 13 to 16 to the response of the gospel hearers. The integrity of the gospel ministers, and then second, the response of the gospel hearers. And that's very briefly, verses 13 to 16. Notice that Paul gave thanks in chapter 1 and verse 2 and 3. Why? Because of the way the gospel had come and was received by the Thessalonians. Notice again verse 13, and we also thank God continually. That Paul says that now twice in the letter, I think means we ought to be therefore people who are grateful to God every time we see authentic gospel response. But what is the authentic gospel response that leads Paul, verse 13, to give thanks? Why? Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So Paul highlights their right understanding of God's word. The Thessalonians received the word from Paul, as the word of God. That's the hallmark of the right response again. People who hear the proclamation of the gospel as the word of God. They hear words uttered from a human mouth, but they hear it as words coming from God himself. That's our experience as real Christians, isn't it? We hear the word of God through human mouths, but we understand it as the word from God. And let me say, I think that's what as evangelists you'll be praying every time you engage in a piece of evangelism. That when you speak the word, you're praying that your hearers hear it not just as your words, but as God's word. Notice verse 13, the human and the divine again in tandem. We saw it twice, didn't we? In uh, chapter 1, and we see it twice again here in chapter 2. So the apostles speak, but it's God speaking. I think it's worth just pondering, of course, that is a remarkable thing that Paul is saying. It's easy to gloss over, to skip over. Paul is actually saying that the word of the apostles, the gospel, is the word of God. And by using that little phrase, the word of God, which is used countlessly through the Old Testament to denote the Old Testament scriptures, Paul is saying his word is on a par with the divinely revealed scriptures of the Old Testament. And the Thessalonians have understood it. In other words, you can tell a new believer by the way they react to the human words of the gospel being God's word for the gospel. You see an appetite, you see a hunger, you see a desire to absorb it. Indeed, I am very doubtful when somebody tells me that they are a Christian and they've got no appetite for God's word. They've got no appetite for the apostolic word. That they won't allow the Bible to have authority over them. And many of you will have seen it. Someone has heard the gospel and then they start lapping it up. Maybe evangelists who are itinerant, don't get to see that uh, very much. Let me tell you that uh, I think it's almost exactly three years ago that Roger came and did a mission in the uh, church that I have the privilege of going to. Is it three, I think it's three years ago, about this time, time uh, of, uh, of year. And uh, 
And my wife was asked whether she would uh, run a daytime inquirers group after Roger had left. And Roger came, and, uh, and this inquirers group was started up. There were seven or eight in it. Six of those became Christians. And they're all now meeting every Wednesday morning to study the scriptures. They love it. It's a great hallmark of an authentic response. Now, Roger never got to see that because he, he, he left after the week. But there they are going on, absorbing the scriptures still, hearing the words of the apostle as the word of God. It's evidence that God is at work. And I take it Paul's telling the the Thessalonians that you are real. The way they received the word of God and secondly they have the normal experience of God's people. Notice there's a second because that comes in verse 14. It's likely when Paul says he gives thanks to God the first reason is because verse 13b and the second reason is because verse 14. And what did the Thessalonians do? Well, when they became Christians, they started to suffer for it. But that does not knock them off the word of God from the apostles. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things these churches suffered from the Jews. So the churches that were planted, that came into being in Judea, they suffered from the hands of their own countrymen, the Jews. Here we've now got a church being planted in a largely non-Jewish area, Thessalonica, and they're going to experience suffering from their own countrymen. And Paul's saying that's quite normal. Indeed, not only has it happened to churches in Judea, but it happened to the Lord Jesus in verse 15. He was killed. It happened to the prophets probably Old Testament prophets before them. And also, it happened to us. They drove us out. Suffering is not only normal for the evangelist who speaks the gospel, verse 2, it's normal for those who hear the gospel as well. Stick for the word of God, stick with the word of God, stick with the apostolic word as the word of God, and you will be persecuted. The twin responses of the Thessalonians, they accept God's word as God's word, and they experience opposition, but are not not knocked off course. And Paul concludes the section by then contrasting the opposers to the gospel, the opposers, whether it's in Thessalonica, the opposers, whether in Judea, the opposers who killed the Lord Jesus, the opposers who are now driving the apostles out, Paul contrasts them with himself. Because notice verse 15, they displease God. Whereas Paul's ministry was to please him. And then secondly... Paul loved people, whereas the opponents are seeking to stop people hearing the gospel. No wonder Paul concludes, in this way they always heap up their sins to the limit. And putting it in the past tense, 
I think to make it clear that it is absolutely certain the wrath of God has come upon them at last. So let's draw to a close. I think these verses are a challenge for us to be authentic in our ministry. A challenge for us to be authentic in our ministry. And these verses then, secondly, because they provide a model of what authentic response looks like, provide us with a pattern of what we'll be praying for every time we do evangelism. Pray that we will be the first of those authentic ministers and pray that our hearers will be like the second authentic respondees. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do count it an enormous privilege to be entrusted with the gospel message and to be given the ministry that you have given to us. Help us to remember that the source of our ministry is from you and ultimately you're the judge of our ministry too. We ask, Heavenly Father, that that would motivate us to be people who stick at ministry even when opposed, that it would stimulate us to be people who stick at the right ministry even when tempted to dilute the message or to tamper with it. We pray that it would motivate us to work hard with the people we minister to, to bring the gospel to them, but to share our lives. And what as a loving father we're calling on people to live, may be lived by us too. We ask, Heavenly Father, that the people we are amongst may know because they see in us, may know a gospel minister of integrity, and therefore nothing of us will put them off the message of the gospel. We ask that for ourselves, loving Heavenly Father. We covet it for ourselves. By your grace and mercy, will you mould us into ministers of integrity. But also, Heavenly Father, in the times when we have the opportunities to bring the gospel to people, we ask that we may understand that when we utter the human words from our lips, that we need our hearers to hear it as your word. And so keep us dependent on you in our ministry too. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.